0: the current pandemic, our team is following government guidelines to ensure that our team and guests are exposed to minimal risk. So this episode and possibly subsequent episodes will be recorded remotely and they will sound a little different from normal podcast episodes. Thank you for your patience, enjoy the episode and be sure to leave us feedback and your thoughts on our website at www.discomfort-zone.com. Hi, and welcome back to The Discomfort Zone. Today, I'm going to be joined with Asma, who is one of our our researchers and co-hosts. And this is our second episode, which is very exciting, because today we're going to be talking about Winston Churchill, who, as many of you may know, he was a former prime minister in the United Kingdom. So today, Asma and I are going to be discussing whether Winston Churchill was a hero or whether he was a villain, which is a very big, hot topic now. It's hugely controversial. You see it on Twitter, you see it on all the social media and we can't wait to discuss it with you because we've been doing some research. So Asma, would you
1: like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the topic? My name is Asma and I'm going to be a co-host on this podcast, The Discomfort Zone. So I really wanted to talk about Winston Churchill in my first episode because recently with, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, his statue in Parliament Square in London was sprayed with the graffiti back in June and it was cleaned away and his statue was covered up and protected but now some people are demanding that his statue should be taken down whilst others are insisting that it should remain protected because he's obviously seen as a hero for Britain but this has sparked a debate on whether Churchill was truly a hero or a villain. Yeah I mean um,
0: seeing as the fact that it is a statue that is that was in question a lot of people were wondering are we idolizing a criminal by keeping that statue up because the question of um, whether he's a villain or hero wasn't, uh, it wasn't very, it wasn't discussed so much when that statue would have been created. But nowadays, looking back on it, people are really questioning the legitimacy of that statue and whether we should have it or not. So what we're going to be talking about today is not just about that statue, of course, but about Churchill and his life and the policies that he put in place and in the um, we'll be providing like an unbiased perspective, just the facts that we research and towards the end, Asma and I can give our own opinion on what we think. So before we start, um, to understand who we're discussing, we need to know about who Churchill was and how he even came into power. So Asma, why don't you tell us a bit about
1: the topic and Churchill himself? So Winston Churchill was actually an MP from 1900 to 1964, except for two years between 1922 and 1924. And most of us know that he was Prime Minister from 1940 to 1945 during World War II when he led Britain to victory. And, you know, he was elected because Britain needed a strong leader and he was one of the only people who predicted for Germany to start war. And a lot of people forget that he was Prime Minister again from 1951 to 1955. And he was recognized a lot and achieved a lot throughout his life, including being knighted by the Queen in 1953 and winning a Nobel Prize for Literature in the same year for his book, which was called The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. So... Let's just start off by talking about why he's a hero. Yeah, yeah. so of course
0: the factor, the main factor, which many of us know, of course, is the fact that he led the country to victory in the Second World War, which was uh, one of by by far one of the most significant wars in world history, because life would be completely different today if there was a different outcome and Churchill was the main reason why we were able to defeat uh, Nazism and fascism and stand in the way of Hitler and his um, ideologies so of course the fact that and, uh, uh, the fact that um, Churchill was able to stand up to such a force is why uh, especially when nobody else was able to is a reason why he is so popular amongst British people today
1: but when world war 2 started he wasn't actually prime minister it was neville chamberlain right yeah neville chamberlain was initially the prime minister but uh,
0: especially when the war started but um this was after the first world war when um hitler had been uh hitler had um Started to now uh, show signs of his ideologies, like he'd written Mein Kampf, he'd given rallies, he'd given speeches, and Churchill was really getting an idea of what may happen if Hitler starts to expand. But this was something that other people didn't pick up on, including uh, Chamberlain in his policies. So Chamberlain wasn't ready for war, and he 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 didn't want to believe that war was going to happen either. In fact. Churchill was known for being one of the only politicians at the time who even said um, there's going to be war, Hitler's going to declare war, and it it was it wasn't just radical, it was he was the only one who was saying that so many people even thought he was a madman at the time but as we know world war ii did happen and he was the only one who warned us because he was able to spot the patterns with hitler so what uh, churchill did was he was able to prepare britain for war in a way that chamberlain wasn't able to and on top of that and um once he got into power um churchill was able to like even even after the the discussion started talking, um between uh, Chamberlain and Hitler and the other powers, Churchill what still wasn't prime minister, um but we saw that Churchill was able to take over Chamberlain at his weak point. One thing I'm particularly keeping in mind is at Munich. Uh, the Munich Agreement was when, uh, Ch- Chamberlain was quite gullible. He signed papers with Hitler, and he thought he's appeased Hitler in his um in his. Like, attempts and his endeavours to gain more land in Czechoslovakia um, and essentially the Munich agreement stated that if they were to give a part of Czechoslovakia, uh, the Sudetenland, to um, Hitler then he wouldn't invade further and that was a sort of appeasement to give Czechoslovakia the security that they needed but also to make sure that Hitler wasn't still power greedy. I mean Chamberlain was very gullible in this stance because it meant that uh, when Hitler did go back on his word and invade, Chamberlain looked like a fool. Because initially, he came back with very huge pride. Like, he came back from Munich with a piece of paper that, and he was walking down the streets, uh, like, being praised for what he just did and the fact that he supposedly stopped Hitler. But when, he, when Hitler went back on his word in March 1939, this wasn't the same attitude people had. And unlike Chamberlain, who had accepted this... Churchill wasn't as gullible and that's one main reason why people started to trust him because Churchill wasn't just going to listen to what Hitler had signed because he was able to approach the science, he was able to understand what kind of a person Hitler had become. So when appeasement suddenly, started, uh, the appeasement, the policy that um Ch- uh, Chamberlain had for, uh, pursued, wasn't popular anymore. Like, for example, there were books such as The Guilty Men, written by Cato. That was no longer being seen as popular, obviously, because it was a failure. And Churchill was able to take advantage of that, and he was able to gain the support of the British people. And eventually he did become prime minister. And he is seen as a hero because in difficult times in the Second World War, he was able to rise to the challenge and save the country from fascism, which if he hadn't have done, Hitler would have still been ruling the majority of the world today, which is so crazy to imagine. But you can see why Chamberlain, uh, Churchill would have been considered to be such a big hero at the time, because he did he did the unthinkable. People thought that, like Many people believe that he wouldn't have been able to succeed against Hitler, but he was able to, especially when other leaders and other countries were not able to. So why do you think, I mean, obviously this is open to interpretation, but why do you think Winston Churchill was able to get the country together? And why do you think he was able to actually fight and counter fascism in a way that other people weren't able to do, especially Neville Chamberlain, who was still prime minister at the beginning? Why? What, what did he do that made him more successful?
1: Well, Churchill was a great speaker. It was his speeches uh, which uplifted the nation and it gave people hope during the war. So when he became Prime Minister in 1940, people were questioning what his policies would be and how he would lead Britain to victory when he came into office. And actually, in his first speech as Prime Minister in 1940, he said, and I'm quoting here, You ask what is our policy, I will say it is to wage war with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us. So he lifted the people 's morales, and he was honest with his people and he made them more confident in each other and in what they were expecting in the coming years. They knew what they could combat and what they could sacrifice, and they were confident that they could sacrifice anything for a united cause to win the war. The fact remains that that
0: happened through a lot of his speeches, not just the first one as well um one that comes to mind is Dunkirk. Um, And throughout the war, he was able to really lift the spirits of the British people and unite them. After all, if you have a divided population, that's one of your biggest flaws, right? Especially in terms of war, when everybody is vulnerable. And with his oratory, which played a huge role into his success, Churchill was really able to unite the nation. So... I agree with you there. Um, Perhaps Neville Chamberlain wasn't the best of speakers and um, we know for a fact he was seen, Neville Chamberlain was seen as a very arrogant man by some people and Chamberlain, uh, Churchill's uh, speaking, his ability to really match with the people in his country and rule over them, that was the reason, that differentiated him from other leaders and enabled him to combat fascism, right?
1: Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that he made a lot of social reforms way before he became Prime Minister. So in 1908, he was in Cabinet as the President of the Board of Trade until 1910, where he helped workers to improve their standard of living. Uh, through a few different policies.
0: Do you have any examples of those social policies, which aren't just, of course, with the um, higher politicians, you know, the rich 1%, like, were there any examples of social reform to the ordinary laymen just around us? Yeah, so he actually
1: promoted and introduced a few bills. Uh, Firstly, he argued that workers should have their working hours reduced, and he promoted a bill which was called the Mines 8 Hours Bill, And this bill legally prohibited minors from working more than eight hours a day. Uh, And in 1908, when he was the president of the Board of Trade, he introduced a bill called the Trade Boards Bill to Parliament, which would establish a minimum wage and the right right of workers to have a meal break, which today is a basic right for workers. Um, But he actually helped those without jobs as well. Uh, what we actually see today, we could compare this to job centres. He introduced uh, labour, sorry, not introduced, he proposed the labour exchange bill, which established over 200 labour exchanges. And this meant that uh, those who were unemployed were helped in finding employment.
0: Yeah, he helped people, not just um, those who were in jobs or in unions, but he really did consider everyone in society which we can't say the same for many politicians even though you would expect them to be that role but um, yeah I see where you come from that the policies that he led um, throughout his life even just before um, becoming prime minister.
1: But with you know changing roles he actually became home secretary in 1910 so do you think he actually managed to maintain his reputation as a hero because he wasn't a uh, president of board of trade anymore he became home secretary. Yeah, uh, so,
0: as you said, he had led many influential bills um, to help the ordinary laymen, and and also just people who um, weren't particularly in trouble. But I think one important thing that he uh, had tackled, which um, is a very controversial topic to this day, is uh, prison reform, which, um, obviously, one reason why it's controversial is because many people disagree of whether or not prisoners should actually be given um certain rights and he really tackled um this issue in a good way which you know he he tackled it well which many people would agree with and i think that it's an important factor to consider if we were to say that Churchill is considered to be a hero so um when he was a uh, home secretary he uh, his prison reform uh, looked like um uh, it came in the form of education but also just standards of living and basic human rights for um prisoners which as I said, it wasn't so common at the time. So one example was he established libraries and he put on lectures four times a year. Now this is something that would have cost quite a bit of money to the government, but it's very significant for the sake of, for the fact that prisoners are going to be in prison of course, for quite a while. And if that time is just used for no reason and not put to benefit, it could lead to this cycle of, you know, coming out of prison and not leading a better life and going back in there. And we see that all the time, even now. And I think that by establishing libraries or or these lectures, even if it's just a small step, it is giving some sort of chance for an education for people who are in prison and to reform themselves. Like, um, I know I've said this lot but to this day you see people who go to prison and come out with a huge understanding of the law because they're able to look through legal books and if they don't always have counsel they're able to like somewhat aid themselves in understanding what's going to happen to them and by giving these opportunities to prisoners he he not only helped them break out of this cycle of crime and um uh, poverty but he gave them a he gave them a hope and that is something that many people would have disagreed with, but Churchill still led that reform. And it wasn't just education. Um, the same thing with the lectures, there were also concerts, which, of course, it can be said that prisoners don't deserve concerts, but sometimes, given the fact there was four times a year, he was able to give them a certain standard of living to keep them going. And it's almost a sort of a scientific approach to it that it wasn't just thinking, right, prisoners, animal, punishment, you know, like treating them like animals. It's not that. he's, He he gave them opportunities to reform themselves. He's, he treated them like a human being, but also gave them the punishment they deserve. Um, and I said before, he had basic human rights. I'm not talking about the concepts there. But he reduced the length of solitary confinement for first offenders to only one month, and um, for people who offended again, for three months, which solitary confinement now is seen as a human rights violation or it's really a horrible torture method that is degrading and dehumanizing and the fact that he was able to although it was still for one or three months, which is a huge time, it was even longer before, and he's, he, he set precedents, you know, and as a Home Secretary, he really used his power to be influential and to help people who normally society would have ignored, like prisoners, okay, it's very easy to say they don't deserve basic rights, but we don't know what they're going through, and I think Chatter was able to sympathise with them and help them in a way that, other politicians wouldn't have done. So with that, with the with, even with the changing role, you can see why people still would have considered him to be a great person. But um, that obviously would have been hugely influential to generations at the time. Um, but even now, we see that people still respect him, like you said, Athma, through his bills and through his um, through his uh, prison reforms. At the time, it would have been so influential and people would have respected him and admired him greatly. But they still do to this day, which I find fascinating because in 2002, there was a poll uh, for who the British public think is the greatest Britain. And Winston Churchill actually won for being the greatest Britain in 2002. And this was decades after his role as a prime minister or home secretary. And the fact that people were still recognising the impact that he had, it kind of shows that generations of people have admired this man and perhaps we could argue that that would be, that can't be for no reason.
1: Yeah, the poll shows that even later generations admired him decades after his death, but when he did die in 1965, he actually received a state funeral, which is usually reserved for monarchs and, you know, maybe held for highly distinguished figures like Churchill, but this is only with the approval of the monarch and parliament and you know parliament are they represent the people and monarchs are very you know highly respected figures in this country so it just shows how people respected him and saw him as a hero and the fact that it was the last state funeral to this day shows the significance of his role in this country the fact that many people such as Princess Diana, Princess Margaret, the Queen Mother, all died after Winston Churchill and none of them received a state funeral, instead they got uh, ceremonial funerals or private funerals. Um, they were part of the royal family and they didn't get state funerals like Churchill did, so it shows how uh, he was so important to the people of Britain and how they all thought that he deserves state funerals more than these people, more than members of the royal family. But, you know, with all that said, we need to talk about the other half of the title of this podcast, which is, why is he a villain? Now, in other parts of the world, he's seen as a villain because of his crimes. They recognise the crimes that he's committed in the colonies of the British Empire. And he was actually the Secretary of State for Colonies of the British Empire for a while. So um, we do know that he was in charge of the colonies such as India and many countries in the Middle East, many countries in Africa. So Amrisa, could you tell us more about his crimes in India? Because it definitely was one of the biggest colonies in the British Empire.
0: Yeah, so um, India was actually known as the jewel of the British Empire. So it wasn't. A, it wasn't. It doesn't come as a surprise that the British had a huge influence there. And Churchill was particularly one of the figures of authority who was responsible for a lot of the change there. Um, but before I get into a bit about the um, actual policies that Churchill had implemented there, I, I'd like to talk a bit about the general racism that existed within that parliament or within um, certain members. So... Uh, this is something that many people have recently seen Um, that came that was written by Churchill in his book, but Churchill had clearly uh, made, said many statements that were racist and um showed a pre- prejudice towards Indians in particular and other South Asians. Uh, one quote in particular that stood out to me was when he said, "Um, and I'm quoting his book here, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. And I, I, I want to particularly highlight that because I think it the it shows the mindset of um this leader which really sets it sets the tone for a lot of the actions that were committed after this was said and Firstly, I would like to say the fact that not all Indians have the same religion. So that's probably the first flaw I'd like to mention. (laughs) So saying we have a beastly religion probably wouldn't be the best start to that. But um, (laughs) the fact that this was even said, it really shows that um, no, not all leaders are guilt-free. Because sure, he may have been great and perfectly fine to the British people. But the Indians, who he had control over as well at the time, like you said, Asma. We weren't we weren't exactly treated with the same. They weren't exactly treated with the same respect and dignity. But uh, anyway, that, those were, that was just one of the statements he has said um, and written. But let's talk about the actual policies uh, that were implemented and had a huge impact in India. A little backstory um, about what happened in India with famines under the British rule. Um, Under the British Raj, uh, there were seven famines in India, the last of which was directly uh, caused and was exacerbated by the policies that were implemented by Churchill and um, the people who supported him. The other six weren't necessarily caused by this, and natural um, events and uh, droughts, all of those that, that kind of led to the same it kind of led to the same consequences but the reason why the seventh and final one in 1943 was so um so devastating is because it could have been avoided and this is this was reported by a journalist who who is now known and was reputed for her uh, writing about this topic um Adhashri Mukherjee and she wrote in her book Churchill's Secret War all about this uh, Bengal famine and um which had led to three million deaths, and nowadays million is just a word that is used, and we we tend to lose, we tend to lose sight of how many people that actually is. But the fact that all of these debts could have been prevented if certain policies were pursued, it really it it really hurts knowing <laughs> that um, the British Empire uh, under their rule, Churchill's own actions led to so much devastation. So. The reason why there was so there wasn't enough food for everyone because there was a lack of import of rice, which, as many of my fellow Indians would also know, is one of the main um, is one of the staple foods in India, and it was imported uh, from Australia as well. So this famine was caused when there's a lack of imports uh, from Australia that um, that in fact went to Britain instead. And um, if you look on reports online, we can see that um, it, the boats passed past India when they were coming to, from Australia and given straight to Britain uh, for their stockpile. And this was um, during the war, of course. So in Britain, there was rationing and there needed to be stockpiles because they, there was a fear of not having enough food for everyone. So eventually their stockpile grew to 18.5 million tonnes of rice. And the UK had 47 million people. So you can imagine this w- this would have been a lot of rice. But we have to keep in mind, Bengal had 14 million more people than the UK. So they had a significantly greater need for this food and for this rice. But it was directed towards a stockpile for a just in case you need to use the rice, rather than giving it to the people who were on the streets dying because they didn't have enough food to eat. So this obviously... Because Churchill had such a huge control, it could have been easily said as, oh, they just did not know what to do, maybe they weren't aware of the problem, but that's not the case, because in December 1942, there were high-ranking government officials and military officers too, so people who easily would have been communicating with Churchill... Um, Some examples were the governor of Bengal, the secretary of state for India and even the supreme commander of Southeast Asia. So on a broader scale, there were so many people who began requesting um, these imports of the food uh, so that India um, could have it, whether that be through government or military channels. And not just not just because um, it would be nice if they had some more food, but because people were dying. And for months and months on end, nothing was happening because Churchill's war cabinet was responsible for not allowing these rice imports to pass through and also other foods too but in particular this main food that was essential to uh, their diets at the time and this caused the famine because even the British colony or the British empire wasn't allowed to use their own ships to import food and it almost seems like the whole system was designed so no food could have been given to the people in Bengal at the time and that's why it's so different from the other six famines that I described earlier which would have been caused by natural causes and of course we can talk about this from a statistical view this many millions of people this this many tons of rice but on a deeper on a level that we could empathize with people had to people were with their families eating grass and leaves which happens to this day in many countries but yeah, there were horrible stories which mukherjee talks about um which uh, mukherjee talks about where people were even eating human flesh to be able to survive and it's so it's such a disappointment to think that this happened just so recently as well people uh, were forced into prostitution and human trafficking just to make enough money to survive and to support their own families and it led to this cycle of immorality because people when there's hard times people are desperate and we see this even now like when there's a lack of food there's a lack of money people will do anything to survive and all of this could have been avoided but it wasn't and to make it even worse not there was no accountability for this which really is is almost the breaking point because the Bengal famine there there was no empathy for it and the indians were blamed themselves like um Churchill himself said it was their fault for breeding like rabbits, which is so, such a big insult, and it's so rude, but the the fact that they weren't able to take accountability for what they themselves had, they had created this, they had created the conditions for this famine to occur, and we were supposedly the jewel of the uh, British Empire, but we really, we really weren't treated like it because where were we given the decency, like the basic human needs, which were given as just-in-case, like a luxury to the British people who, yes, of course, they also, they were also in hard times during the war, but all this food was given as a stockpile to them just in case they need it, which is one of the reasons why Churchill's policies weren't exactly so heroic because of course he may have been great in other uh, in other countries but in India in Bengal in particular he he didn't exactly save people now um one thing that uh Mukherjee's book really um she concluded and she said that um she describes this whole British Raj as a social Darwinian period with an, uh, pyramid with an imbalance of power and she she's saying she was saying how this isn't just this wasn't just basic racism but also um the, the this imbalance of power was the reason why famine could have been tolerated in India and it was just seen as fu- it was fine, it was oh they're just people over there, we don't know who they are. Like it's almost like ignorance is bliss if you can't see it happening it's not happening but whilst bread rationing was regarded as an intolerable deprivation in wartime britain so the fact that they had to share pieces of bread was so hard which it was but that was seen as a bigger problem a more relevant problem than people who were literally eating each other's flesh to be able to survive and that's why many indians to this day would say that Churchill's actions weren't exactly the most and he's in a way he's a villain because he allowed this to happen he allowed people to die knowing that the alternative the the solution was given as a backup to other people just because of who they are
1: yeah I think it's horrific what happened in India and the Bengal famine and the fact that he was so insensitive to say you know Indians are beastly people with a beastly religion and he said they were breeding like rabbits but you know He said so much about India, but he also said things about other people and other countries in the British Empire. He had many racist views and he was known to be very racist. Now, he even blamed the Native Americans and the Aboriginal Australian people for their genocides. Now, I'm quoting here that he said that he did not admit that a great wrong had been done to the grip to the red Indians and the black people of Australia by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, has come in and taken its place. And, you know, people do say that he's holding the views of his time, uh, and they argue that, you know, everyone thought this stuff at, at the time, but I think that racism was so embedded into his belief that he wanted to implement it in other countries, so, for example, when the Kurds rebelled against British rule in 1920, Churchill said that he didn't understand the squeamishness surrounding the use of gas as a weapon, and he was strongly in favour of using gas against uncivilised tribes, which is what he said. So, it clearly wasn't just uh, circumstantial against the Kurds, it was you know, him wanting to be violent towards other colonies all over the world, uh, all over the British Empire, and he wanted to show that They were superior. He was, you know, a strong white supremacist that wanted to implement his beliefs all over the British Empire. But um, when Churchill was asked about his opinion on a Labour Party visit to China, his racist views didn't, you know, they continued. And he said, I hate people with slit eyes and pigtails. I don't like the look of them or the smell of them. But I suppose it does no great harm to have a look at them. Now, this is just degrading to you know, Chinese people and to everyone all over the world, he was so open with his racist views and comments. He really had no shame, to be honest. Um, And he thought that it was all right. He was superior and he could get away with it. Yeah, uh, he wasn't just, um,
0: like, previously I said that this may have been uh, the reason why he's a villain in other countries, but not in Britain. And actually, I... um, on the other side of that, there is the fact that he was also seen as a villain in Britain as well by many people. Um, so, of course, he had these racist views towards um, people from all over the world. I mean, so, some of the things are just so rude and offensive, but he also had eugenic policies um, that were borderline um not even They were horrific, like he said, and uh, in a way, he can, he can be compared to Hitler in some of in some of the things he said. Um, actually, there's an Indian politician called uh, Doctor Shashi Tarur and he said that Winston Churchill was no better than Adolf Hitler, which is a controversial statement to make. But it, I I understand why some people may be coming from this perspective, but, um, this point of view because Churchill had many many controversial things to say about mental illnesses. So um, he drafted legislation and he uh, talked consistently in the 1910s um, about uh, uh, people who were suffering from mental illnesses being sterilised. So uh, as a MP for uh, Dundee, he wrote to the Prime Minister Herbert Asquith and he he talked about the pop the population of people um with mental illnesses as if they as if they were a disease to the population. He called them feeble minded, insane classes. I mean the the derogatory terms just did not stop. But on top of all of that, he he then thought that this is something that should be suppressed for the sake of what he called superior stocks, and he's referring to people like himself here. And by by calling these people a national threat or or some danger it's really hard to see the difference between him who said that and then Hitler who essentially said the same thing about the Jews and the strength of the German people and then advertising this it's kind of like what Hitler did when he had the victims of the past movie or um, life unworthy of life a book that he wrote and the The fact that they a- he was able to propose such uh, a terrible ideas, it. It it is. It goes to show that he had some very questionable beliefs, and many people would argue that he is not someone who should be praised for uh, wanting to have compulsory labor camps to sterilize hundred thousand what he called degenerate Britons. Um, there was no respect for these people who, ha- who just were born with other conditions, and in in the same way that many people were sterilized and murdered in in other countries the fact that Churchill was pursuing the same policies in Britain it shows that he wasn't the hero that we always see in the textbooks and you see this on the BBC um you see this on the Churchill website too so this isn't just something that um Someone wrote up as revenge. It is clearly said online as well, but it was, but it was it wasn't written in his biography, which was written by a uh, Churchill's son. So um, it's important to see that that we don't always see the full side of the story in the history books or in the, in the memoirs. We we have to look a bit into what he actually did in his own country and in other countries.
1: Yeah, and um, there's actually a lot of surprising things about Churchill that not many people know. Uh, which is someone so big and significant like Barack Obama. He had a really interesting situation which linked him to Churchill. So when George Bush left a bust of Churchill near his desk in the White House after he was president, um, you know, he was trying to associate himself with Churchill and Churchill's stand against fascism, Barack Obama actually had the bust removed and he had it returned to Britain. Now, this is because his grandfather, who was Kenyan, his name was Hussein Onyango Obama, was imprisoned in Kenya for resisting Churchill's empire. And he was imprisoned without trial for two whole years and was tortured, you know, on Churchill's watch. Um, There were so many torture methods used all over the British Empire and specifically in Kenya here, which was also used against Obama's grandfather. These included using electric shocks, Uh, cigarettes and fire for burning and whipping and you know all these tactics were used under Churchill just because Kenyan people wanted independence uh, and were resisting the empire. Now Hussein Obama's case is quite unusual among Churchill's victims because you know one main reason and that is he is the grandfather of the President of the United States of America. So that was something really special and it actually surprised me because I didn't know that and I don't think many people know that happened so for someone so big and significant and important, you know the first black President of the United States of America to you know take this stand against Winston Churchill just makes me think not everyone thinks that Churchill's a hero and the, the President of the United States didn't think he was a hero, clearly, so that was really surprising to me. But, you know, that, re- that makes us uh, think and question, should we continue to remember him as a hero? Because even though he led us to victory in World War II and saved the country, uh, you know, despite his crimes, does this mean that only his actions for Britain are important and the rest of the world doesn't matter? Because, like with Obama, you can still see the negative effects of the British Empire, of his time, on some countries today. And how it's, you know, made people have a certain mentality, like Obama, to stand against Churchill. Yeah, like, it's... it, it's
0: certainly not just easy to say i um, one side of the... It's just easy to say he was a hero. No, definitely. We should definitely honour him. Because it, it's so much more complicated than that. There are so many things that happened in different countries and also in Britain that really have to be considered and have had negative impacts to this day. Like you said, Asma, like it's had a mental impact. Like People really don't want to venerate this guy who has led to so much death and hostility. So if it's so complicated, um, I think that the way that we learn about it should also be changed a bit. Um, So uh, growing up in a British school, uh, I think I, I was never told anything about Churchill's um, policies, which we've mentioned above, um, that weren't so heroic. I was uh, I was definitely taught that he was a hero and he led us to victory in World Two. I was never told about what he did in India. I certainly set those up for myself. So I really think that we should change how that's taught in schools and to learn about everything that he did, not, not every single policy, but, you know, we to learn about the good and the bad, to get a rounded perspective of who he was, because, like I said before, if we just portray him as a hero and never look at the bad things that were committed under his power, uh, under his, um, under his, um, like, status as a prime minister, I guess, uh, we will never be able to stop history from repeating itself again, and that is, a huge problem which we need to prevent, we need to make sure that someone like this doesn't, policies like these are never put into place again.
1: I wanted to also mention that one thing that goes unnoticed or you know mainly because we use it every day here in the UK is that Winston Churchill's face is actually on the £5 note and that is something really important because it just shows how important he is to the British people for his face to be put on the £5 note and uh, for everyone to see his face every day when using uh, £5 and money. But does this make us see only one side of the story because if he's so important and he's so heroic heroic and uh, they've made his face on the £5 note, people forget that there's another side to the story and all his crimes and how he's a villain and that in reality All over the world, internationally, people were impacted by his crimes and his policies. So, do you think he should still be on the £5 note? Um,
0: Well, my personal opinion, I don't think so. I think there are so many other people that could be put on the £5 note that are worth... um, like, uh, worth honouring in so many different aspects. I think Churchill did do some good things which should be recognised, but I don't think a £5 note, which doesn't give the full side of the story, is the way to go. Because, like I said, even in Britain, he wasn't an entire hero. Like, he had policies and very questionable um, ideas that I don't think should be um, honoured in the note of the currency, because that is such a huge huge statement of um respect and which we may have for his protection of the Br- of the british um re- uh, the bri- uh, Britain but i don't think that that is accurate and showing everything that he did um i but yeah i i, I think that it's it's definitely it's definitely something that you can hear both sides of the argument for but Before we wrap it up I just wanted to say this is a very interesting topic that there is so much to read about so I would really encourage everybody that's listening to go online to go to the library and read a bit about it. We have just recently launched our website it's www.discomfort-zone.com and uh, we will be putting in a few links that we found really interesting and read whilst preparing for this podcast episode and it would be lovely if you can just read those and tell us what you think about it as well so Asma thank you so much for joining us on this episode and it was lovely to have you here talking about Winston Churchill and we'd love to hear your opinions too see you next week